Welcome to the Ram Iyer Podcast with your host, Ram Iyer, thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. Listen to his engaging conversations with experts from across the world and his personal insights that will help you create a better life, become more successful, and achieve your personal greatness. Now, here's Ram! Welcome to Business Thinking Radio. I'm Ram Ayer, your host and president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. Today's show is The Engineering Mind and What the World Can Learn from Engineers, a conversation with Guru Madhavan, author of the book Applied Minds, How Engineers Think. He's a researcher at the National Academy of Sciences. Engineers uh, the world over are a breed apart. About a quarter of the Fortune 100 CEOs, about a third of the S&P 500 CEOs, and perhaps more than half of the NASDAQ CEOs are engineers. I'm an engineer myself, and so is uh, Guru. But I came across in Guru a fellow engineer who is currently doing research, and he has spent a lot of time studying the engineering mind. What is it about the engineer's mind that sets them apart? And what can people from other professions learn from it? Guru is a biomedical engineer by training and a senior policy advisor at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. He was named as one of the new faces in engineering in USA Today and as a distinguished young scientist by the World Economic Forum. He is a prolific writer. He has his own blog writes for others, uh, articles, and books. He also speaks about his research at various events around the world. Welcome, Guru. Ram, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So we know engineering as a profession. These days, of course, engineers are broadly called as techie. Who is an engineer or a techie? Is there a way to define these people? It's a profound question because uh, if you think about it, ultimately, we were all tool builders. Before, as a society, we became um, discoverers, lawmakers, governors, and subsequent specializations. But ultimately, we all began with uh, that ingenuity driven by practical necessities, naturally created, artificially created, call it. And uh, in a way, uh, engineering goes back to the very foundations of humanity. And it's the root force that has created the world around us, as we all know. And the way I see it, principally two systems at uh, operation here, systems of nature and systems of uh, engineering. If you consider systems of nature, I mean, Mother Nature does quite a bit of experimentation, quite a bit of prototyping, to use our jargon here. But it's uh, not really goal-driven, not constraint-driven, but that's the exact opposite when it comes to engineering. Engineers are uh, supremely good by practice, by necessity, again, uh, to design under constraints. And these constraints are set uh, by the society, by the users of the ultimate products, services, processes, call it. In a way, uh, it's the constraints that really drive the engineering mind to produce creative outcomes. The engineering mind also possesses some other fundamental qualities, and there are two of them in addition to constraints. That includes bringing a structure where there's none. And by structure, I mean not just seeing what's readily foreseeable or creatable, but also seeing the unseen. A civil engineering professor of mine early on in my engineering education told me that uh, 
Uh, a good engineer is able to visualize a bridge before its existence, but not just that, but also visualize in the mind's eye the stress-strain relationship on the load-bearing columns of the bridge. Now, that takes quite a bit of uh, innate imagination of how such a system would work before it exists because failure in engineering is a significant thing and uh, it could be very unforgiving. The stakes are very, very high. Uh, sometimes life may depend on it. So bringing structure to a system or, or space is quite uh, important. And finally, the ability to make judicious trade-offs is something critical, and that's something uh, integral to an engineering mindset. You cannot have everything in life, and uh, that's a very practical thing that uh, an engineer understands. You are always trading something for another, like cost, schedule, and the technical requirements, user preferences, and so forth. So there's always something or other to be traded off. So together, you see that the combination of structure constraints and trade-offs form the essential qualities of the engineering mindset, and any good engineer would be able to demonstrate that. In your book, uh, Applied Minds, uh, was about how engineers think. What is different or special about how engineers think? What you laid out is, you know, people's ability to see structure when there may not be some uh, a structure, the ability to uh, deal with constraints, make trade-offs. Those are not unique to engineers. Yeah, absolutely not. But engineers often encounter this in practice in a different grade of risks and stakes and so forth. Uh, for example, a ballet dancer uh, might be able to apply these uh, as well, but uh, in very different circumstances. Uh, a musician might be able to apply this, or any, uh, any CEO uh, really encounters these uh, issues here. But at the same time, how do you ensure that the creations of the engineered processes produce technologies or outcomes that are safe, reliable, and productive and uh, are able to um, change over time, could be iterated over time. So the stakes are uh, completely different, and that's why only when failures happen, engineering comes to the front page of the news, not otherwise. So two things. One is there is engineering all around us, you know, the phone we are speaking on and uh, the structure, the buildings we are in, all of these were. Uh, at some point designed by engineers. As long as they are working, they are invisible to society. Yeah. But the moment they stop working, they become very visible to society. That's one of the paradoxes here. It's omnipresent, yet invisible. <laughs> and I think what you're doing through your show and what other colleagues are doing in, uh, in wonderful ways is to improve the public consciousness of the role and responsibility of engineering in society. The other thing I also glean from what you said in, in response to the previous question was, you know, you're not necessarily saying that engineers are the only ones who, uh, you know, see structure where there is none or deal with constraints or make trade-offs. Other people do as well. However, the engineering mindset, along with a whole bunch of other attributes, the way an engineer thinks, the way the engineer acts, that overall mindset, I'll give it a much broader thing than three things you mentioned, much broader. Those could be copied by people in many other professions in order to generate better outcomes in whatever they are doing. You're absolutely right. If uh, Think about it. Everyone is an engineer at some point in their lives. and Some people just do not propagate it to the entirety of their lives or at all points in their lives. Or any three-year-old is, is really good at this. 
In fact, to more directly address your earlier question, what is the essence of the engineering mindset that's so special? And in my viewpoint, it is something called the modular systems thinking. What do I mean Mm. by that? It is the ability to really deconstruct a system into its constituent parts. Understand the parts very thoroughly. Understand how they work individually in isolation and in collaboration with other elements. Understand how each element works in terms of its function, in terms of uh, uh, its uh, linkage to others, and how it functions over time and in space and so forth. You have a really thorough understanding of these uh, elements. And this is something what uh, Brian Arthur uh, of Santa Fe Institute calls a deep craft, you know, the intimate knowledge to how things really work. Um, who to approach when something goes wrong or how to troubleshoot it. So really, a, a really a in-depth understanding of how these things work. And that's something uh, very, very important. And this kind of goes back to an earlier comment we were uh, talking about, the intuitive understanding of how forces would work, let's say, in a bridge or a building mm-hmm. or so. The second part of it is the ability to reconstruct them again. Uh, all the parts that you're disabled. And I'm talking about it in a very conceptual way, but it could also work in a practical element here. Um, bringing them back together and see how they work together as a system and uh, see if the parts work, how it could work or potentially work. And uh, if it doesn't work, um, you know, redo this whole thing. So this kind of the disciplined, iterative nature of decomposition and recomposition is something really important. And this concept, you know, varies across the engineering practice. It manifests itself in many different forms. I mean, uh, it could be very different in an oil rig versus an aircraft assembly plant versus, let's say, in a software company or so. It's, uh, you know, it's not a singular talent, but it's it's a combination, a melange of different uh, approaches and principles that depends on uh, this disciplined approach. And, uh, you know, there's a, uh, software engineers call this uh, stepwise refinement. Um, it's a helpful life concept, actually. How do you think through your life decisions in a, in a very structured way to improve upon your uh, choices, enhance your decision-making prowess, help support your decision-making skills in uncertain conditions and so forth? And I think um, this could be very valuable in life and business and government. It's a good demonstration of engineering thinking. Yes, you want to build a bridge, but I think the real issue here is you want to reduce traffic congestion. You're not trying to build another bridge. You're saying, I want to reduce traffic congestion. So let's take a look at it a little bit differently. Yeah, you're right. And uh, some of my friends are civil engineers. They're practicing uh, engineers. They work in the construction industry and everything. And the turns of the latest mantra is when some problems are presented, you know, back in the day, it would be, oh, yeah, let's build a bridge, let's build a tunnel. And uh, now it's the complete uh, change in mindset. Do we need a bridge? Do we need a tunnel? Yeah. Or what else could be done? So that's a big shift in the mindset of one of the most traditional line of engineering practice. <laughs> so it's not just some engineer sitting and coding in a basement and launching it uh, for public consumption, but it was happening in the real world while these experiments were underway. So to give you a very quick lateral example here, this is something what philosophers call a frame mismatch, right? So you, let's say you're in an elevator, you're on the 10th floor, and you press the lobby button, and the elevator stops, and you assume that when the elevator stopped, it was a lobby button, and you walk out, and then you realize it's the third floor. Mm-hmm. What you didn't know and couldn't know with the available technology is that there was someone waiting on the third floor, hailing the elevator down, going to the lobby. 
So this was something mm-hmm. you didn't have the benefit of knowledge here. So this is called a hidden variable. A friend of mine uh, who is a shipbuilder, he's a, he's a naval architect, he tells me even if, uh, if we had the capacity to instantaneously produce a ship, 3D print a ship, It'll take three years, um, given the protocols, paperwork, bureaucracy, red tape, and everything for the ship to launch. So there are human factors involved in there that the engineering has to deal with. The other thing that also comes to mind is when you think about um, engineers, the way they work, uh, they do a lot of prototyping. You know, uh, you know. I, as you know, I used to work at the Boeing company in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And when they design a brand new plane, that is uh, a plane that weighs a few hundred tons. And the first time I was there when the 777 was launched back in the 90s, mm. on the first day, they have no idea if this plane will take off from the ground. So there mm. are a lot of variables they know. They know what the constraints are. They've put together a design, and based upon their experience, they believe it will take off. But the reason why they have the confidence is they design and they prototype the heck out of this thing and test it like crazy. And that's the nature of engineering thinking. You're right. And uh, I think uh, the confidence that one achieves through failure analysis, because that's something innate. It's a shadow of uh, engineering design. You cannot avoid it because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, failures could be very painful and they could have uh, huge consequences. And we have enough experiences. So we have um, uh, failures to guide subsequent engineering design. You talked about the rocket launch earlier. And imagine how many failed uh, takeoffs mm-hmm. we had that informed this successful takeoff here. So That's a really powerful lesson for a lot of uh, professions here, especially at a time when many of the corporations, entities, and uh, other forms of uh, businesses and governments and so forth are becoming extremely (laughs) risk-averse. It's the human nature, right? You know, you do it once, you know, wait a minute, how come it's not working? It happens because it's the very nature of uh, seeing destruction. Uh, that happen, and uh, you you try to uh, take a very different approach. It's innate, it's integral, and uh, it's human nature to fear failure. But uh, without failure, we won't be able to uh, advance. And I think that's where the discipline of prototyping could be very instructive. One other thing that also strikes me is, you know, when you look at people who are successful versus others who are not, one of the classic lectures they get given is, you did not learn from your failures. The engineering mindset is used to failure, saying, yes, maybe this won't work seven times, but I'll make sure it works the eighth time. What happens between the first and the eighth time is the engineer has learned from the seven failures and incorporated the lessons in order to make the eighth one successful. Yeah, and it's not a reckless failure uh, in the sense because uh, the aviation industry where you come from, I mean, it is one of the safest (laughs) Um, one and uh, I've read some statistics. I might not be up to date on it. And uh, the number of fatalities associated with aviation accidents is pretty low. I mean, uh, in single digits or something. But it's it's very very low compared to other high risk uh, uh, industries. So, uh, and uh, I think um, it's it's a it's a really helpful uh, uh, notion to keep in uh, mind because of such uh, really grave uh, catastrophes and failures. Many of them man-made even, and uh, that's something to keep in mind because not all of them are natural (laughs) 
are reckless. Um, but uh, they've helped uh, create an uh, infrastructure, a safety culture, rather, that we uh, now um, gain the benefits from seat belts uh, in a car, even, even drawing a simple line in the middle of the road. I mean, that's a, one of the most in, brilliant engineering creations, which helped organize traffic around the world. And it, again, came from uh, on-the-ground uh, practice. <laughs> And so these are all very simple technology, need not be powerful ones. I mean, speed limit, stop signs, and all those things that we see every day uh, that are right there, pretty mundane objects, <laughs> uh, are all uh, creations of uh, this process. To go to Boston from uh, New York for a 40-minute flight, <laughs> I have to spend five hours in my day to get to the airport and uh, go through the security, check my bag, and, um, and get out and get a cab and get to my destination and so forth. So it's not just technology per se that's the issue. We have supersonic technologies available, <laughs> but that's not going to make that much of a difference because you really need to take care of the other parts of the system. It's, a, it's, it's the baggage handling part that should be focused on. It's the queuing part uh, for security check in the airport that needs to be uh, taken care of. So there are a lot of the human dimensions part of it that needs to be fixed. Guru, take a step back. Most of the world consists of people who are not engineers. What can the world learn from engineers that will make the world a better place? I would offer three very concrete ideas from the world of engineering. And uh, this is something that I've been sharing with a lot of colleagues. And uh, I believe uh, they, are, uh, they could be uh, directly applicable to life, the way I see it. So I think as a combination, systems analysis, failure analysis, and human factors, um, they have, I think, um, a good synergy and could be broadly applicable across context, across practice, and across all walks of life. So one last question for you. You know, you have uh, worked with the uh, former president of my alma mater, Charles West, uh, the president of MIT. You worked with Larry Summers, and uh, I'm sure you, you, know, you worked with many Nobel Prize winners. And, uh, you know, you come from humble roots, I know, and uh, you're in a position of uh, great influence at the NAS in Washington. Of all the things you have heard from people all through your life, what is the one thing that guides you in your professional life to this day? Oh, that's a powerful question. And uh, it's actually an advice that dear mentor Chuck West gave me. In fact, uh, wrote my book and I dedicated it to him and uh, it was actually that book was an assignment <laughs> for me from him and uh, he had said this in many different ways but uh, I think sometimes we forget when we get so deeply rooted in our specializations and super specializations of the professional creations our own creations rather that uh, we are all part of a, a grand narrative here and I think uh, that's the element that I, I try to apply to my uh, life because when you use, when you operate at the level of a narrative or a story, it is very easy to transfer concepts and morals across stories as opposed to working at the level of a code or an equation and so forth. So I have had the fortune of uh, operating at a slightly higher level of abstraction, <laughs> which um, it turns out to be very helpful and it's a very powerful tool. Uh, for an engineer, uh, contrary to what many people think, many people think it's uh, you're detail-driven and uh, you have to um, 
work uh, uh, at a level of uh, refinement that others uh, might not be comfortable in. But I think every technology and every social creation comes with a story. And uh, how do you go about recognizing the story and uh, sharing it with one another? Now, that's the ability that's, uh, I feel, is somewhat diminished in highly intense professions. And I think that's something that uh, Chuck and several others, uh, even some of them in my own family, have frequently reminded me. Saying mm-hmm. that ultimately, we're all part of a story. And um, uh, propagating that is our responsibility. Mm-hmm. Guru, many, many thanks for taking time to come on uh, Business Thinking Radio. Uh, obviously, I enjoyed our discussion and I hope our listeners did as well. And look forward to having you come back as you glean more insights into the minds of engineers the world over. Ram, thank you so much. It would be my great pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Business Thinking Radio. If you'd like to comment on this episode, please send an email to businessthinkingradio at businessthinking.com. This is Ram Ayer signing off. Thank you for listening to the Ram Ayer Podcast. Every week, we bring you the thought-provoking and practical conversations to help you become better, smarter, and more successful, helping you achieve your personal greatness. All from the perch of Ram Ayer, the thought leader, author, keynote speaker, workshop leader, and mentor. If you want to comment on this episode, please email us at podcasts at mitramaya.com. If you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.mitramaya.com forward slash podcasts or find the Ram Aya podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and wherever fine podcasts are uploaded.